This morning's reading is Ephesians 5:22 through 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's pray. Our Father, as I take the time to address the husband's role now this morning, I pray for two things. I pray that the weight of the calling upon us would land upon us. I pray that the seriousness of it would land upon us. I pray that the intensity of self-sacrificial leadership would seem real to us and, and in some ways heavy to us. If it doesn't feel heavy, I, I doubt that we're really getting it. And so I pray for that, Father. I pray for a sense of the weight of your command upon us. And I also simultaneously pray for a sense of the freedom that comes from the gospel. Because the truth is, no man in this room, starting with me, can possibly live up to what you're calling us to do here. That is, without Jesus. And so Jesus Christ is the one who comes and lifts the burden that we feel He's the one that comes and frees us from our sin. He's the one who comes and transforms us into His image and empowers us and encourages us to live as He lived. So I, I pray for Your help, Lord. I pray for a weight and I pray for a freedom, both things. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in Your sight, our Lord, our God, our Rock, our Redeemer. Amen. Last week we talked about Ephesians 5.22-24, through 24, which essentially commands wives to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. And at the end of that sermon I told you that I wanted to continue that conversation today. But as I sat to put my thoughts together, I realized that the rest of what I have to say about the calling that is upon women uh, rests so much on understanding the call that rests upon men. And so I decided this morning that instead of continuing that conversation, I would go ahead and turn our attention to the role of the husbands. And then in the next two weeks, I want to come back and talk about some practical matters, some what-ifs and just some basic stuff that, that are implications of the things that we're talking about. So I want to begin by reiterating four things from last week, fairly briefly, and then I'll move on to address verse 25. First thing. The main subject of Ephesians 5:22 through 6:9 as I've been saying is submission. That submission takes on different forms for wives and husbands, for children and parents, for slaves and masters, but it's important for us to see that submission is what is being called for from all of us. All of us. We're all being called 
to submit to God and then to take on a role that He has assigned to us. Since submission is an integral part of worship, then we are still essentially talking about worship for the next few weeks. Number two, Jesus Christ is in fact Lord over all things. And therefore the call to submission and the call to humble leadership must both be seen in the light of who Jesus is. Those who are being called to submit are essentially being called to submit to Jesus and then to display that fact by the way they submit to other people. The main thing here is not the horizontal relationship. It is your vertical relationship with Christ. And you do what He asks you to do out of reverence, out of love, out of respect for Him. Those who are being called to sacrificial leadership, same thing. We are essentially being called to submit to God to admire what Christ has done, and then to seek by His power to imitate Him in the way that He leads. So the calling upon us is different, but it is essentially the same. That is, we are all being called to submit to Christ who is Lord, and then simply to obey Him in whatever calling He has put upon us. Third, in calling some to submission and others to sacrificial leadership, God is not calling us, any of us, to do something that He Himself has not already done. I told you last week that Jesus Christ is the ultimate display of humble submission and He's the ultimate display of sacrificial leadership. And so, when He calls a person to submit to another, what He essentially is calling them to do is to imitate Him. He's inviting them to display an aspect of His beauty to the world. And when He calls a person to lead self-sacrificially, in essence, what He's calling them to do is to imitate Him and to display to the world what the leadership of Jesus Christ looks like. We will be so greatly helped, friends, if we'll understand that this vertical relationship is really what's at stake here in this whole submission leadership thing. Essentially, what we're all being called to do is turn our eyes upon Jesus to look at Him in His wonderful face, to admire Him, and then by His power to imitate Him in one way or another. Fourth, in light of all that I've said, the calling of God upon Christian wives is to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. As I said last week, all women are not being called to submit to all men. Particular Christian wives are being called to submit to their own husbands. Christian wives are being called to willingly take the subordinate position in the marriage out of reverence for Christ in order to display the beauty of His own submission to God the Father. Of course, in Ephesians 5 we see that another function of the wife's submission to the husband is to display the way that the church ought to relate to Christ as well. But that doesn't undo the fact that the primary thing a wife is supposed to do in the home is display the beauty of the submission of Jesus Christ to the Father. We'll talk about the church part in another week. But for now, I just want us really to focus in on that. That you're essentially imitating and demonstrating Christ in your household. So if I was you, I would think to myself, if, if Christ Himself was in my position, how would He act? And then act accordingly. Wives are not inferior to their husbands. Superiority and inferiority has absolutely nothing to do with this conversation. They're simply being called to play a role for the glory of Christ and the good of the church. Okay, with that, let's turn our attention now to the calling of God upon Christian husbands, which begins 
in verse 25 goes all the way to verse 32, I think. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I want to spend our whole time today focusing on this verse. Just as women are called to submit to their husbands, husbands are called to love their wives as Christ loved the church. So we better take a few minutes and, and get this word love clear in our heads because there's ton of confusion about it in our culture, and we need to be clear so that we'll be able to obey well. In Greek, there are four words for love. Stergo, you probably haven't heard of that word. Eros, philos, and agape. Stergo just means love in a very general sense. It's the most general Greek word for love you can imagine. It's never used in the Bible, which is why many people haven't heard of it. But it's used widely in the Greek culture. It was used widely in the Greek culture just to mean love in a general sense. Eros means to have passionate love for somebody that is often, though not always, expressed through physical intimacy with that person. We take our word erotic from this word, so that'll give you some sense of the meaning of this word. Although in English, that that word kind of tends to have some sinful connotations, whereas in Greek that's not necessarily the case. It just simply refers to that kind of love, whether pure or impure. Philos means to have fond affection for someone or to like them. You've probably heard someone in your past say that this word refers to friendship love, right? Like the city of Philadelphia. Philos is one word. Adelphos is another word. You put them together, it means brotherly love. So most people's perception of this word is that it means friendship, love, and there is some truth to that. But this word is used in the Bible to refer to the way Jesus loves his disciples. And it's also used to refer to the way God loves Jesus. And so obviously, something a little bit more than mere friendship is meant by the word philos. I really think in the English language, our word like, in the, in the fullest sense of that word, captures the heart of philos. Like means... I appreciate you. I'm fond of you. I admire you. I respect you. I enjoy you. I like you. And that's, in essence, what philos is about. Agape, then, comes along and builds on philos. It is not essentially different from philos, but it adds something to it. Agape means to be favorable toward a person, to sincerely appreciate a person, to highly regard a person. And so in that sense, it's all like philos. But the thing it adds is that it has this sense of to be loyal to a person, to be committed, to be dedicated to that person, and intensely so. So philos and agape both hold this feeling of fond affection, but agape adds this sense of intense loyalty. I love you, and I will always love you. I love you with an everlasting love. And therefore, agape to the Greek mind is the highest form of love. When Paul says in Ephesians 5.25 that husbands ought to love their wives as Christ loved the church, he chooses the word agape in both instances, for our love and for Christ's love. So he is calling us husbands to the highest form of love. We are being called to love our wives with deep affection and with intense loyalty to her, just as Christ did for the church. Now in our culture... I think even Christians are by and large confused about what love is because we have in this culture, for all intents and purposes, reduced love to feelings, right? Generally speaking, that's the truth. It's why Barry Manilow's song was such a hit. Because everybody thinks love essentially is feelings. And that idea is not completely without merit because I hope you've picked up from what I've been saying that 
love must abound with feelings. Love without feelings is not love. If I was to say to my wife Kim, who's up serving in the nursery this morning, bless her heart, if I was to say to her, Kim, I love you, I am committed to you, I will never leave you. But I said that with a sense of duty and without much emotion, well, there, there'd be something really wrong with that, wouldn't there? It would be like saying to Kim, I love you, but I don't particularly like you. And that's not love. To love someone and not like them is, is not truly love. So love is supposed to like as well. Love is supposed to have feelings attached with it. True love is not just a, a sense of duty to someone. It is a delight in that person. It is an enjoyment of that person. It is a like of that person. Kenny Stokes, who is uh, one of my mentors at Bethlehem Baptist Church, just about every time I meet with him and ask him how he's doing, he said, well, as far as my marriage goes, I'm in like with my wife. Not just in love with her, I'm in like with her. And what he means by that is that he's not just committed to her, but he enjoys being with his wife. He enjoys life with his wife. And that's a beautiful thing. That's what love is all about. So, true love abounds with feelings, but here's the deal. It doesn't reduce the feelings. True love abounds with feelings, but it does not reduce to feelings. Feelings are an integral part of love, but they're not what's at the center. Feelings are a byproduct of, of, of what is at the center, much like heat is a byproduct of fire. Heat is not fire. But if you gather around a fire and you don't feel any heat, something's wrong. Something's either wrong with the universe or with the fire or with you, but something's wrong. Same thing with love. There needs to be feeling there, but feeling is not at the center of love. So the problem in our culture is not that we've associated love with feelings, but that we put feelings at the center of love. That's the issue. When we say things like, I'm falling in love with you, what we really mean is, I'm developing feelings for you. And the tragic thing about that is, then when those feelings either wane or disappear, which inevitably feelings will come and go then we think we've fallen out of love with the person. We think we have license to leave the person, even if that relationship has been sealed by the bond of marriage. Marriage means very little in our culture because feelings have come to mean everything in our culture. And that's a tragedy. And many people have paid a high price for that mistake. So husbands, those of you who are in Christ, if we're to follow Christ and love our wives as Christ does the church, we absolutely must do violence to this way of thinking in us. We must kill it. We cannot be lazy or passive or absent-minded about it. We must intentionally seek to destroy this way of thinking in us, or I, I promise you it will destroy us. Believe me when I say that no matter how far you have progressed in your life with Christ, something of this way of thinking is still in your mind, it's still in your heart, because we are products of this culture. And I just don't think there's any way to be in this culture without something of its narcissistic values seeping into our hearts. So I promise you that to some extent you probably have feelings misplaced in your relationship with your wife. We need to kill this thing. We need to understand feelings are not at the center. They're the, by the byproduct of something else. Jesus Christ is calling us in Ephesians 5.25 to something much greater than feeling-centered love. So, if feelings are not at the center of love, what is at the center? What is the thing that gives rise to fond affection toward others, especially toward our wives? Well, one answer would be to say it's being committed. It's that sense of loyalty that I talked about. 
And I think that loyalty has a lot to do with love. No loyalty, no love, that's for sure. But I do not think that loyalty is at the center of love. I bet you many of us could think about a couple or two in our lives who have remained committed to one another and who have remained faithful to one another, but they don't like each other. In fact, they're probably miserable with each other. So they've stayed married, but they don't even like each other. That's not love. Commitment is a a crucial part of love, but love does not reduce to commitment either. So what's at the center? What's at the heart of love? What is it that gives rise to fond affections and intense loyalty? What is it? Well, the verse before us today says that Jesus Christ loved the church, and then it helps us understand what that means. And gave himself up for her. So one way you could read it is, he loved the church by giving himself up for her. He demonstrated his love in that he laid his life down. There is one word behind our, one Greek word, behind our three English words, gave himself up. And that word literally means to hand oneself over or to deliver oneself up to others. And the way that Paul put this, it's really clear that when Jesus Christ was handed over, which, which undoubtedly means the cross, that He was handed over and gave His life up. The way Paul put it, it's very clear that Christ Himself was the one who handed Himself over, right? Judas was not the one responsible for the death of Jesus. The Jews were not the ones responsible for the death of Jesus. The Romans were not the ones responsible for the death of Jesus. Jesus Christ gave His own life up. Look at John 10 with me. I'm not sure if I put it up there actually. But John 10, 17-18 says this. Jesus speaking. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay my life down that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. Not Judas, not the Jews, not the Romans. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again, this charge I have received from my Father. So, Jesus demonstrated His love to the church, not by passively allowing His life to be taken, but by actively laying His life down for her. That's what husbands are being called to do. Love our wives as He loved the church. We don't sit around and wait for a chance to be self-sacrificial. We're the instigators. We wake up in the morning and say, Lord, by Your grace, by Your power, I want to lay it down for my wife this morning for the glory of Your name. Now it's important for us to remember here that as Jesus gave Himself up, the thing that dominated His heart and mind was love for His Father. It is no exaggeration to say that Jesus Christ did every single thing He did for the love of His Father. All you have to do to see that that's true is read the Gospel of John with a modicum of care. And you will see that the dominant thing in the mind, and the heart, the eyes, the affections of Jesus was His Father. But here's the thing. Jesus' love for the Father did not diminish His love for the church. It gave birth to His love for the church. The reason Christ laid His life down for her was because He loved His Father above all things. And this, my friends, is what is love. To use one's position and power and possessions for the glory of God and the good of others in that order. First to God, then to others. It's to empty oneself as Jesus did and take on the form of a servant as it were and be obedient all the way to death if that's what the Father calls you to do for the glory of His name, the fulfilling of His purposes and the good of others, in this case, the good of our wives. So, I conclude 
That at the heart of love is neither feeling, nor commitment, nor even self-sacrifice. But at the heart of love is the worship of God. It's neither feeling, nor commitment, nor self-sacrifice. But at the very heart, the essence of what love is, is the worship of God. When a man truly loves the Lord his God with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength, not putting on a show for anybody, he means it. He wants God. He's willing to die to his desires that he might have God. He's willing to incrementally forsake all other things that he might have God. When a man lives like that, he will increasingly demonstrate his love for God through acts of self-sacrificial love. He will increasingly become intensely loyal to those he loves, especially to his wife. He will increasingly be committed to her and have deep and deepening and fond affection for her. He will increasingly be a glory to God and a blessing to others, beginning with his wife. The Bible says only a couple times that it says God is something. Equating a noun with a noun. And one of the things it says is that God is love. He is love. So part of what that means is that the fountain the spring, the ever-enduring source of love is God Himself. God Himself is at the center of love. And so true love from humans to humans is born as we look to God, fill up with God, and then overflow to others with self-sacrificial love. True love, which is fond affection and intense loyalty, it is born and it is a byproduct of the worship of of God. So husbands, the calling upon you, if I can maybe make it a little clearer how I'm seeing Ephesians 5.25, the calling upon you is to love your wives because you first love Christ. The calling on you is to imitate your first love, Jesus Christ, by laying your life down for your wife just the way He laid His life down for the church. And brothers, when you get this right, when you put God first above all other things, including your own wife, then you will develop fond affection for her. You will develop an intense and rightful loyalty to her. If you're struggling with these things right now, if you are stagnant in your sense of affection and commitment towards your wife, I'll tell you how to solve the problem. Draw near to God. Draw near to God. As you draw near to Him, things will fall in place. My mother used to tell me, Put God in His rightful place. Everything else will take care of itself. And she is right about that. And I promise you, husbands, that as you do draw near to God over time, and as you learn to imitate Him in your marriage over time, your, heart, your wife will find it no chore to submit to you. She will find it no chore to follow your lead. There is not a woman in the world in her right mind who would not want to follow a man who loved her the way Christ loved the church. Love like that inspires followership. It does away with the whole problem of submission. It would never be an argument. If I love Kim the way that I'm supposed to, we would never argue about submission. It just wouldn't even be an issue. She longs. To follow a man who loves her as Christ loves the church. Brothers, our Father has issued a difficult calling to our wives. I said that last week. I tried to put it out on the table as plainly and as biblically as I could. But here's the deal. We can make it seem easy to them by the way that we love them. If we would play our part, their part would seem easy. 
it would seem desirous to all but the most rebellious of women. And so let's follow Christ and love her the way that He loved the church, no matter what her response is. If you have a rebellious wife, that's her problem. Your problem is to obey your God and lay your life down for her. Let God take care of her. Now with all that, I have three bits of wisdom that I want to share with you today. And I'll close with these three things. We must learn, brothers, husbands, to draw near to God every single day of our lives. We must draw near to Christ without exception every day of our lives. And listen, when you blow it, when you drop the ball... Remember what Christ did. There is so much grace to cover your sin, you can't imagine it. But that doesn't excuse us from pursuing Him in the way that we ought. So we we have to draw near to Him. The only way that we'll be able to love our wives as we ought is if we love Christ as we ought. There's no other way. The only way that we'll be able to lead our wives as we ought is if we follow Christ as we ought. Every leader in the body of Christ is essentially a follower. This is why Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Paul was probably the greatest leader the church has ever known. And he said, follow me, not as an end in itself, but follow me because I'm following Jesus Christ. Leadership is essentially followership. The only way to lead our wives well is to follow Christ really well and increasingly so. The only way we'll be able to sustain a Christ-like loyalty to our wives is if we draw near to Him and bask in the beauty and the truthfulness of His loyalty to us. The only way we'll be able to increase in fond affection for our wives year after year and decade after decade, increasing more and more in love for them, the only way is to draw near to Christ and to eat of His affection for our wives. And that's the way I think this works. As a man draws near to Christ every morning and at some point, at some proper moment, begins to pray for his wife, I think what happens is that God Almighty opens up his eyes and lets him see something of how he feels toward the woman. God, when I draw near to Him, opens up my eyes, invites me into His heart and says, Charlie, here's how I feel about Kim. Here is my affection for her. Here is my commitment to her. Now you be like me. And as I take what God shows me and reveals to me and I love her as I ought to love her, He'll give me more. He'll give me more. We were giggling a little bit at the men's meeting this last Saturday because it kind of dawned on us how long Adam and Eve were married. Think about that. You think a 50th year anniversary is something? These guys probably had a 500th year anniversary. Let me ask you something. How do a husband and wife keep loving each other for 500 years? There's only one way. Draw near to God. I promise you, the love of God for my wife is infinite. And if I will draw near to Him, He will share more and more and more of me. I will love her more in a year from now than I do right now if I draw near to Christ and eat with Him and dine with Him and steward well what He gives to me. So brothers, how are you doing with this? Are you drawing near to Christ every single day of your lives? Are you supping with Him through the Word? Are you supping with Him through prayer, through expressing yourself in worship to Him? Are you learning what it means to commune with God? And I'll tell you, I've met a lot of guys who think that all that kind of stuff is kind of girly stuff. It's the stuff women do. That's why guys don't do it much, and women do it a lot, because it's girly. This stuff is not girly. 
Learning to commune with Christ is not a girly thing. Praise God, women, it is a woman thing, but it's not only a woman thing. It's a manly thing too. Just think about King David. I'll bet you, if King David come in here right now and said, every man in this room, I want you to come up here and we're going we're gonna to go for it. We're going to go blow to blow, toe to toe. I'll bet you David could take out every single one of us, even if we came in at them all at the same time. Now, I'm not kidding about this. Next time you read the account of his life, slow down a little bit. Think about what kind of man this was. This was a man's man. This was a fierce man. But you tell me something. Who was more passionate about communion with God than David? Who had more skills? Who was more committed to drawing near to God than David? Probably nobody but Jesus Himself. And so it is a manly thing to draw near to God and to seek communion with Him. And the the deal is that everything God calls for us to do in our lives depends on whether or not we do. We were never meant to fulfill our callings on our own. We're meant to fulfill our callings as we draw near to Christ and receive from Him and then give out of the bounty of what He has given to us. So brothers, how are you doing? Are you making time for the Lord? Are you putting the Lord ahead of your wife? Are you putting your Lord ahead of all of your commitments in your life? Now I know this is hard. I know that you guys are really busy people. I know that. I know that you have 10 million commitments and things on your mind that you really do have to commit yourself to. I have a ton of stuff on my mind too. I'm compassionate about that. And yet, I cannot and I will not hold back from pleading with you to put God first and foremost in your lives. Brothers, if you're too busy for God, you are too busy and you need to repent. God must have the first place in your life. Everything else will flow from there. Some of you probably need to go home this afternoon, break out your schedule book, and change your life by the grace and power of Christ. Put Him first. Let David's longing in Psalm 27.4 become your longing. He said, one thing have I asked, one thing have I asked, and that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Now this guy had to run an entire kingdom. So I promise you he was a busy man, and yet he had time for God. We can have time for God too. So brothers, despite the difficulties, draw near to Christ every day of your lives. Number two, as we learn to draw near to Christ and grow in communion with Him, we must work with Him to kill self-centeredness in us. We must do violence to it. We must destroy this within us by His grace, by His power, by His revelation. The the insidious thing about self-centeredness is you don't see it because you're so self-centered. So you need someone outside of you to reveal to you how self-centered you actually are. And when He shows that to you, we need to work with Him to kill it in us. I tried to show you last week, brothers, that God has vested a lot of authority into us as husbands. But the thing is that God has granted us that authority not for our own self-interest, but for the good of our wives. And so if we're to fulfill that calling upon us, we must learn not to wake up thinking about questions like this. Hmm, what can I have the wife make me today for breakfast, lunch, and dinner? What can I have her do around the house today to make my life a little bit easier? When and under what conditions shall I ask her to engage with me in physical intimacy so that my needs might be met? What shall I have her do hmm, to serve me this day? How can I get out of the stuff I'm supposed to do so that I can get out of the house and go do the stuff 
I want to do. Questions like that, and if we're all being honest with each other, we all think things like that on a daily basis, some shape or form of them. Questions like that unmask a sinful, unchristlike, unrepentant heart that is antithetical to everything that God is calling for us to do as husbands. Now, I'm not saying that our wives can't serve us in some of these ways. I bless God that my wife serves me every day. This very morning, she got up and made me breakfast, and I praise God because it allowed me the time to prepare my soul to be here in front of you this morning. I bless her for that. But what I'm saying is that husbands should not wake up every day thinking, hmm, how can my wife serve me? We should wake up every day thinking, how can I lay my life down for her? So we've got to work with Christ to kill self-centeredness in us and to breed self-sacrifice in us, which leads to the third point. As we learn to draw near to Christ and grow in our intimacy with Him, our communion with Him, we must work with Him to breed a God-centered, other-focused attitude within us. And I put it that way, God-centered and other-focused, because the, the antidote to self-centeredness is not other-centeredness. The antidote to self-centeredness is God-centeredness. The solution to self-centeredness is drawing near to God and being so filled up with Him that my needs are met and now I can give myself away to others with less and less and less ulterior motives. So practically speaking, what I think this means for husbands is that instead of waking up with the kinds of questions I mentioned a minute ago in our minds, we have to wake up with questions like these in our minds. Jesus, my Lord, for the glory of your name, how shall I lay my life down this day for my wife? How can I inspire her to love you more today? How can I lighten her load more today so that she'll have time to draw near to you, time to understand you, time to obey you, time to follow you? What can I do to make her day more productive and more God-honoring? What can I do to provide for her needs? What can I do to protect her from her enemies? In short, Jesus, how can I lay my life down for this woman that you have given me this day? Brothers, do you wake up thinking stuff like that? I don't. I confessed that to my wife last night, and she said, Really? You don't wake up thinking godly things? And I said, Well, it's not so much that I wake up wondering what you should do for me today, but I wake up thinking what I have to do for me today. And I don't take the moment to say, what do I need to do for Kim today? I have an agenda. I need to sacrifice it and first serve her. Later, the Lord will make time for me to do what I have to do. I don't often grow, uh, wake up with an attitude like that, but I want to. I want, as I draw nearer to Christ, to breed His kind of attitude in me toward her. I've often said that when I think about the authority that God has given me in my wife's life, I do not think about holding her under my thumb and bossing her around. I do not think that what God has vested in me means that I get to tell Kim what to do and she has to do everything that I tell her to do. That is not what it means. What I generally think about when I think about the authority I have in Kim's life is that I want to use it to inspire her toward God. God knows that above everything in my marriage, I want Kim to look at me and say, wow, I wish I had passion for Christ like that. I wish I loved the Bible like He loves the Bible. I wish I would give myself to prayer the way He gives Himself to prayer. I wish I would pursue God the way He pursues God. Man, I want to know God the way He knows God. And all that, not to make much of me, but to make much of God in her. 
I want her to love God more because she's married to me. That's what leadership in the life of a woman is all about. It's about inspiring her toward God. And that's my prayer every day. Every day I pray that, Lord, please let my life inspire my wife toward You. I don't want to hold Kim under thumb. I want to watch her blossom into everything God has made her to be, intellectually, spiritually, otherwise. And I want my life to be a part of that blossoming process for the glory of God and the joy of our own souls. Christ gave Himself up for the church. Why? To make her holy and blameless before God. Now, I have no power to do that in Kim's life. Right, husbands? We don't have the power to make our wives holy. Only Christ has that power. But we do have the power to inspire her toward God. To turn her eyes toward God. And if you live a life like that, your life, your marriage, will have been worth every single bit of it. I pray that every husband would join me in praying a prayer like that over their wife. Oh, Father, please allow me, if nothing else, to inspire her towards You. So, brothers, I say again to you, the calling on our lives is to love our wives because we first love Jesus. Our love for Him is the fountain of everything we can give to our wives. The calling on us is to imitate our first love, Jesus Christ, by laying everything down for the good of our wives. And if we're going to ever fulfill this calling, if this calling is ever going to take root in our lives, then we have to draw near to Him every day. We have to kill self-centeredness in us. We have to breed God-centered, other-focused attitudes in us. With us, these things are impossible. They're absolutely impossible. Do you realize, husbands, that God is calling you to act as though you had never sinned? He's calling you to be the kind of husband that was a pre-fall husband. That's impossible! Except with Christ. Except with the body broken. Except with the blood spilled. Except with mercy pouring over your lives. So this is a gospel thing, brothers. We're being called to be like Jesus by the power of Jesus, by the mercy of Jesus Christ. And as I said earlier, if we will do that, I promise you, our wives will be glad to follow us. They will follow us to the death if we love them in the way that Christ loved us. Only the most rebellious of women in the world would not want to follow a man who loves her in the way that Jesus Christ loves the church. So it's on you, brothers. It all starts with you. You are the instigator. And you must rise up and lay your life down. You must rise up and be men of God. Don't be wimps. I don't want to see wimpy men in this church. I don't want to hear excuses from me or, or from you. Let's not let each other go there. Let's rise up, draw near to Christ, and be the men of God that He is calling us to be for the glory of His name and the good of His church. Next week, I want to talk with you about the nature and the beauty of this wife and husband relationship a little bit, especially the oneness. The nature of our leadership in the lives of our wives is unlike anything else in the world, and it's beautiful. It's breathtaking. So in, as a way of encouraging you to get ready for next week, if you could spend a little time, meditate on Ephesians 5, 28 through 33, and also uh, Genesis 1 and 2, if you had the time. I've been thinking pretty deeply about these things in the last couple of weeks, and I just really feel breathtaking by what God has shown me about the nature of the marriage relationship. So I want to probably spend about the first half of the sermon next time talking about that, and then I will, Lord willing, get into practical things. For now, let's pray together. 
Lord, I pray now exactly what I prayed in the beginning. I pray that a sense of the weight of what I've been saying would land on every husband here. It would be so easy to hear these words and then walk out of this church like nothing was ever said, like nothing ever happened. And the reason I feel the confidence to pray that, Father, is because these words are not my own. They come from the Bible. You have said them clearly. You have put a a heavy mantle of leadership upon men. And I pray by the grace of Christ that it would land upon us. And also, I pray that a, a weight and a freedom from the gospel would land upon us. I pray that we would not feel like we have to establish a righteousness of our own, but that we can simply lean on Christ and receive from Christ and imitate Christ by His own power. So please again, I pray, Father, for a rightful weight and for a freedom of the gospel to come on every single man here. May we rise up and love our wives as you love the church, mainly to make you look glorious, and then also to make their callings doable and even enjoyable in Christ. Please help us, Father. With us, these things are impossible. But with you, all things are possible. And I also pray that you would receive our praise now as we rise to sing in Jesus' name. Amen.